You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States in the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individuals, employers, nor the official opinions of C-19. Ella Higginson at the turn from the 19th century into the 20th century was the most well-known American writer from the Pacific Northwest. She was said to have put the Pacific Northwest on the literary map. My name is Laura Lafredo. I'm a professor of English at Western Washington University. I teach and publish on 19th century American women writers And my current project is known as the Ella Higginson Project, which is focused on recovering the works of once famous Pacific Northwest author Ella Higginson. If in thinking about Pacific Northwest literature, we're thinking about literature written in English that was published, I consider Ella Higginson to be the beginning of what we now recognize as Pacific Northwest literature. So there were articles and essays and a few books written and published before Higginson began writing, but these were not aimed at a literary audience. They weren't something that, um, they were more travel narratives, sometimes a few diaries, but when it comes down to the idea of writing literature in English for a literary audience, Ella Higginson is the beginning of Pacific Northwest literature. Northwest at the time for white middle-class people who were literate in English to have someone like Ella Higginson writing about the region that they lived in, the region that they were dazzled by, the region that sometimes made it very difficult for them to make a living. This was like seeing themselves in the mirror for the first time. So you have a Pacific Northwest audience that is that is dazzled at being recognized in writing, and then you have a national and an international audience that is so curious about this remote place that's very difficult to get to that they read this very avidly. Part of Higginson's success is that she writes about the Pacific Northwest, which hardly anyone has seen. You and I can talk all day about, we can say words like Mount Baker, for instance, or Puget Sound, and those are familiar to us now, but at the time they were almost magical words. They had not gotten used to getting up every morning and seeing Mount Baker. And most of these people were not, at this point, were not native to the Pacific Northwest, so they had lived other places, and they had come out here on what was really a great adventure in many ways, especially for white men, and they were not used to getting up every morning and looking around and thinking, what is this? You know, what is the, the way that God's creation looked to them? That's how they would have phrased it, compared to the way it had looked to them in, in Indiana or in, or in Missouri. After the U.S. Civil War, after the North won the Civil War, one of the larger tasks of the culture was to reunite a very fragmented, traumatized nation. 
And one of the ways that literature responded to this, one of the ways that literary writers responded to this, was to begin a movement to write what's now considered to be regionalist writing. So you have someone like Sarah Orne Jewett writing exclusively about New England, someone like Mary Wilkins Freeman, the most popular writer of the day, writing exclusively about New England. You have Jack London writing about California and Alaska. And what became known as American literature was American literature that wrote about specific regions of the country and how those regions were different from other regions. So you could be a white middle class reader at the time. You could be a person of color, but literacy rates for people of color at the time are are very shaky. So you could be a white middle class reader of the time, male or female, and in, in the Northeast, let's say, and sit down to read Jack London. And not only would you be completely engaged and drawn into this image of California and of Alaska, but it would be part of the nation that you were now embracing and that you were being encouraged to re-embrace in these unifying ways. Correspondingly, you could be you could be Bret Hart or you could be Jack London on the West Coast and you could read Ella Higginson and you would think, yes, here is the Pacific Northwest, which is a part of our nation that we love. However, because no one else was writing much at all about the Pacific Northwest at the time, to some extent for Pacific Northwest readers, I will rarely say that gender doesn't matter, but gender mattered less here because, and Higginson in reviews of her work was her, uh, her work was compared to works by Hawthorne, by Tolstoy, by Charles Dickens, by Emile Zola, by Jane Austen. And so the reviews uniformly elevated her work to that, to that canonical status. In terms of Higginson being classified as a woman writer in some sort of way that would categorize her or even diminish her, that does not happen in reviews of her one completed novel, Mariella, which is such a tour de force that, that her authorship as a woman is almost put aside. With her short fiction and particularly with her poetry, the fact that she is a woman shows up in reviews again and again, not in a disparaging way, but in a way to mark that authorship. Well, it's so interesting because the class I'm in right now is about biography and autobiography and what that looks like. And right now, Laura is trying to argue that Ella Higginson wrote like the autobiography of like the Pacific Northwest, essentially, which is super fascinating because for me, like my major paper for that class was talking about all the places I could find Ella Higginson within her work. So for me, it always kind of started with the author. And then the work was just sort of like a... It was, it was like, it mattered for me because the author was local, and she, her interests were local, and then her writing was also local. Like, you find, as you read her work, that, you know, she's actually writing shit about, like, her next-door neighbor. Like, Martha with the hens, like, won't stop. Like, just, she totally gets gossipy. And, and then Laura gets really quiet after, after all the, uh, the in numbers bid and how successful she was and how famous and how there were books of hers in Australia and things like that. Laura gets real quiet and uh, and she starts talking about the obscurity part of Ella Higginson's um, life and I, I do remember fe you know sitting up very straight because I was so invested at that point and it was oh my god I can feel the blood rush out of my face it was so sad. It was just, it was heartbreaking to realize that this woman who was apparently such a character and very well respected and loved by her friends 
and uh, very successful, just was almost completely forgotten by the end of her lifetime, and that she knew it, too, that Ella Higginson knew that she was forgotten was the real kicker. Ella Higginson, at the turn into the 20th century, was a famous American writer. The Macmillan Company had approached her about publishing her books of fiction, her books of poetry. They had solicited a book of nonfiction from her. She was one of their best-selling writers. She had won all kinds of prizes. Her works were published in all the major periodicals of the day. She had no reason to think that she would not remain a well-known writer for the rest of her life. And then World War I broke out. If you went back to the United States before World War I and asked people, for instance, if Mary Wilkins Freeman, the great New England writer, would ever be forgotten, people would have laughed at you. Mary Wilkins Freeman was so famous that when she finally decided to get married at age 50, it was in all the gossip columns, and she wrote to a friend, I don't dare even think about getting married for fear it will make the newspapers. When World War I breaks out, Ella Higginson's works go out of print, Mary Wilkins Freeman's works go out of print, Sarah Orne Jewett's, it, it, across the board really, all these works go out of print. Ella Higginson writes in a letter, when the war broke out, books went out of print so quickly. Once the war is over, very few of those books that went out of print come back into print. And with the end of the First World War, you then have the beginning of the rise of a codified academy in the United States. So you have all these white male professors, all these white male editors, all these white male publishers, and it's not that they're getting in a room together and conspiring to not publish or to not republish women and people of color, not that at all. However, what they are responding to, the way we all respond to, they're responding in terms of their own biases, their own desires. And so, for instance, part of this, a good part of this movement, is that the works of Herman Melville are finally republished and recovered, and it's the beginning of what becomes the great Herman Melville, who we recognize today. But Higginson's works do not come back into print. Higginson, who suffers from ill health at this point, probably some kind of heart trouble, she continues to write, but it's harder and harder for her to get her work published. And as time goes on, she lives until 1940. As time goes on, she considers herself to be a former writer, a former minor writer. So there are several decades of her life when she is no longer publishing or not publishing much. What I know that she did not know, because I have access to the absolutely wonderful internet, is that during this time when she was feeling more and more forgotten, her poetry and her short stories especially continued to be reprinted and reprinted and reprinted in publications across the United States. So even as you had the rise of um, what becomes the canon of American literature and this sort of elitist exclusivity, meanwhile, you still had all these newspapers and magazines that people who didn't know anything about the canon and cared less about it read all the time. And they would read Ella Higginson's stories. They would read her poetry. Of course, she was not making any money on this at all and did not know that this was occurring. But since I've gone back and looked at all these publications, I was shocked when I got to 1930 and I thought, but her poetry is still being published all over the place. She didn't know that. And if she had known it, she would have wanted to get paid. Another point I had, I was 
you know, deep into the, the internet archives, and I found myself, I was searching on Higginson, and I found myself looking at a wholesale catalog that was given to men who went across the country selling jewelry to jewelry stores. And I thought, why am I looking at this? And I went through it, and what had happened was there was extra space, and they put an Ella Higginson poem to a diamond in it. And so as much as we want to say, you know, I know that poetry has become, you know, a much more elitist occupation in the 21st century. It's like opera in a way. But as much as we might want to say that only certain kinds of skilled readers can read poetry or can read the right kind of poetry, whatever that is, you nonetheless have this really thick undercore of readers who like poetry no matter what people say, you know, important people say poetry is, and they're going to read things like Ella Higginson. They're going to read Longfellow's The Ride of Paul Revere, right? They're going to read Hiawatha, and they're going to think, they're going to love that even if they're, they think they're not supposed to love it. For women writers and for um, writers, who, men and women of color, I think that's, that's one of the most common narratives. Because what happens then is on one hand, you've got this group of, as I say, publishers, editors, academics. Well, then over here, you've got this group of newspaper editors, right? And these are people who, copyright is still a very shaky thing at the time. These are people who need to fill space in their newspapers. They're doing the whole cut and paste kind of layout thing, and they have an extra column or they have an extra space, and they go toward their favorite poems. And some of their favorite poems are poems, for instance, by Ella Higginson. With the rise of the feminist movement in the 1970s, many forgotten women writers were very valuably recovered. It was a big deal. With the rise of the Black Studies movement in the 1980s, many forgotten women of color who had written and published, most notably Zora Neale Hurston, were recovered. Because Ella Higginson's work and her papers were centered in the Pacific Northwest, she was very far from the Northeast centers of publication and archives. And so her work was not remembered. You have to know that some work is there in order to be able to recover it, and no one knew that it was there. So it took, it took much longer for her. Having said that, and, and that on one hand pains me because I, I, I believe she should have been recovered with these other women writers. On the other hand, by the time I begin my work on Higginson, there is a 20-year, very well-established um, body of work about recovering women writers. And so that's a tradition that I easily was able to tap into and was able, easily able to use in order to make my arguments that I continue to make for the recovery of Ella Higginson. So what I see happening, I don't think... I don't think that Ella Higginson's work will be forgotten again. I'm not as far as I will ult would ultimately like to be. However, I've published articles on her. I've given presentations on her. In the fall, I'll be leading a discussion of the Pacific Northwest Women Writers Group, where I will be teaching them Higginson in order for them then to go out and I, you know write and publish or teach Higginson themselves. I've taught Higginson, and I don't want to underestimate the value of teaching Higginson's work because publishing about Higginson's work is my way, of course, of speaking to other scholars. Teaching Higginson is my way of speaking to Pacific Northwest students, many of whom will go on to teach themselves. And so what I'm ultimately aiming for is to have Higginson's work so recovered that 
It is in American literature anthologies. Scholars write about it. Her work and her authorship become part of an academic conversation about American writers and about American women writers. Um, and it was, it was a good lecture. I was very fascinated, but it was also very sad. And I had, I had resolved by the end, you know, before the end of class that I'm going to go see this lady's grave. And so that weekend, I actually did go to Bayview Cemetery, and I went and saw Ella Higginson's grave, and I was there for a couple hours. Um, <laughs> getting a bit off topic, but I, I went there. Um, I brought her flowers, of course. I'm going to bring the lady flowers. And, um, and I brought Laura's selected uh, writings of Ella Higginson book, and I read her some of her stuff, um, and, I, and her grave is right on the road, and so I didn't want to sit on the grass, because then I'd be like in between her and her husband, and they're like right there, didn't, didn't feel right. So I sat on the road on my coat, and it was cold, it was 42 degrees out, and it was windy on a Saturday afternoon. And I sat there reading, and my hands, I was so stupid, didn't bring any gloves, and my hands were aching. And I was just reading her poems out loud to her. And then I decided I had brought another, a couple other books with me. Because um, in the Philippines, where my mother is from, we're very different about dead people. Um, ghost culture is completely different, so we're very sentimental um, when it comes to uh, dead folks. And so I brought out Edgar Allan Poe, which Laura had said she had read and didn't dislike. So I was like, okay, that's, that's what I got in my personal library. Also, I'll, I read her a couple stories from there. And then I kind of said, okay, Ella Higginson, you know, this is my personal favorite book, which is the unabridged text of Peter Pan from 1912. And so I read her some of that as well. Um, but yeah, that was pretty much my first in encounter with Ella Higginson. I was sunk faster than the Titanic, basically. Okay, yeah, so like, as a student, as I'm like learning about Ella Higginson and feminism at the same time, um, it was really jarring to find that she was not only like a best-selling author who'd been like printed, like multiple printings had happened of her books and this like hardly ever happened in the first place, um, but to find out that she was so well-known that she could like put a good word in for Mark Twain and then still be forgotten, and then even like lit majors who don't know anything about like like, I couldn't talk to anyone about anything, but maybe they'd be like, oh, have you read Mark Twain? Like, that's a conversation I've had, you know what I'm saying? But, like, no one would have that conversation about Ella Higginson. Like, I say that name, and then people are like, huh, I'll have to maybe check her out, but they never mean it. And it's, like, a big deal, because she is completely forgotten, and, like, that's a really... I, I mean, to me, that's... I don't know. My husband sometimes asks me, like, how does it matter, <laughs> like, in the grand scheme? And that's a totally fair question. And um, I don't know except to how it matters to, like, every woman writer in the future. So in that way, it matters a lot. I was first reading Ella Higginson's one completed novel, Mariella of Out West. I was having a very enjoyable time reading it. No one had written about it. I was in my office. I was about three-quarters of the way through it. It's about a 400-page novel. It's set in the Pacific Northwest, of course. It is centered around issues of an older woman and her daughter, a younger woman, and what women need to do or should do or should not do in order to have a stable place in a changing world. And I got about three quarters of the way through it, and I was reading a page, and I thought, I've, I, I know this. I've read this before. And I knew I had never read Ella Higginson's Mariella before, and so I continued reading, and I thought, 
I, I recognize I recognize this. What is this? And at that point, and this was this is one of my small claims to fame, I, since I began my academic life as a Hawthorne scholar, at that point I realized that what she was doing was rewriting a key part of the Scarlet Letter. And I thought, this cannot be possible. And then I continued to read, and I knew that I was right. There was evidence all over the place. She was taking a key part of the ending of the Scarlet Letter, taking it from New England, moving it to the Pacific Northwest, and changing what happens to the white woman in the Pacific Northwest from what happens to the white woman in New England. I continued reading, and I found all these clues all over the place. So there were four different instances on one page where Higginson uses the word scarlet. And when I went back to the archives, I found in one of the drafts of Mariella where she had written crimson, crossed it out, and it's her handwriting, and wrote scarlet above it. She was seeding this section of Mariella with these clues, and nobody ever got it until, and this is really not so wonderful of me because I know Hawthorne so well until I read it and I thought but so this is about this is about the adulterous white woman and the difference here is what happens to the adulterous white woman in New England and what happens to the adulterous white woman in the Pacific Northwest and so in terms of my own scholarship I had been very deeply interested as always in what happens to women in particular white women as they negotiate various kinds of um, of cultural restrictions and in this case Ella Higginson took it a step further for me in making the point that it depends on the region of the country that you're living in so Hester Prynne must live her life um, paying a kind of penance, voluntarily putting the scarlet A back on her chest, counseling other troubled young women, whereas Mariella's mother, Mrs. Palmer, well, she feels really bad about her adultery and privately she's tortured, but otherwise she just goes around to her neighbors bragging all the time. So Hester Prynne commits adultery and the whole culture shakes. Mrs. Palmer commits adultery and pretty much nothing happens except she feels really bad. So that what that means is the stability of the larger culture, the stability of, um, of the civil nature of the culture is, is threatened in New England in Hawthorne's hands. Higginson reads The Scarlet Letter, which is one of her favorite books, reads it and then reimagines it in the Pacific Northwest, and what would happen to a Hester Prynne in the Pacific Northwest? What would happen to Hester Prynne's daughter, Pearl, who has to go to Europe to marry, right, and have a life? What would happen to her in the Pacific Northwest? And you can see it's so easy to chart it. It's commonality, commonality, commonality. The adulterous mother, bing, we got both of those. We have the daughter who finds out about her mother's adultery and responds to it. Both daughters end up marrying men and moving to England. Both daughters want their mother to move to Europe with them. Both mothers refuse, saying that they would not fit in there. You have Higginson looking at Hawthorne, looking at the Scarlet Letter, and not, not even necessarily in, in a critical way, but um, more, more in an, an artistic, imaginative way, thinking, what if we move this to the Pacific Northwest? How would it change? Okay, so in Higginson Hall, there's this Ella Higginson quote that is framed, like they really cared to commemorate her, just not accurately. 
And so in the last line of the poem, it's supposed to say um, the never-ending song of the hermit thrush, which is like a, I think it's a bird or a, it's probably a bird. It's probably not a bush. Anyways, so it's a bird. And um, instead, Western like completely misprinted it. So it says the never-ending song of the hermit. So Laura like made this huge stink about it because she's like, I just picture like this lonely man like walking around campus like singing the lonely song and so she wanted to have like she she honestly for a long time was trying to like pay people like she was joking about it but she was serious she was trying to pay people to go change it like to go edit the framed thing and finally like she emailed me over the summer one of her students did it like completely like in sharpie made like a little edit so it said thrush at the end of her permit and I was baffled because 12 linear feet is a significant amount of material. They had drafts, they had manuscripts, and even though she was later in the 19th century, I know a lot about 19th century women writers, and I thought, how can it be that I've never heard of this woman? And so I made myself a note about it and thought I would get back to this at some point. And indeed, I had to finish the book that I was writing, I had to teach those darn students, all that stuff. And when the time came, when this did rise to the top of my list, I went back to the archives and I looked box by box at the whole collection and I still have my very early notes about this because they are so clueless that they entertain me because I can't imagine, I'm thinking, who is this woman? And so at first, given the way things were set up, at first I thought she was a woman writer who lived in Bellingham. And then I thought she was a woman poet who lived in Bellingham because she has many books of poetry. And then I began to realize as I went through these materials and slowly started to form some kind of image of her that she was a, um, a very prolific poet, a very prol prolific fiction writer. And what I realized last of all is that she was a very prolific writer of nonfiction. For four years, she had a weekly column at the beginning of the 20th century in the Seattle Times. So a column every week for four years is a lot of columns. She also had her one completed book of nonfiction, Alaska, the Great Country, which was considered to be the book that you had to take with you when you went to Alaska. If you were only going to take two books, it was said that you needed to take Ella Higginson's Alaska, the Great Country, and the Bible with you. Alaska is the only book of hers that is in print when she that is still in print when she dies when at that point when she is is virtually forgotten. So it took me probably about a year to recognize all the, the dimensions of Ella Higginson as a writer. And because even though her papers were collected, no one had looked at them. So it took me even longer to realize how many awards she had won, how, much, how many prizes she had won, and how much money. Then I got to the three unpublished screenplays, which added a whole nother dimension to this. because it was a completed screenplay that Ella wrote in 1914. It's amazing because it was like her typewriter and her handwriting was in the margins and... Like yeah. pure magic pages. <laughs> so, we, we, uh, so we went down there, found the script, got copies of it and read it and decided that we needed to adapt the film. I'm Cassidy. And I'm Stacy. And we are co-owners of the local Bellingham production company, Talking to Crows. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it, I think, was like the parallel 
um, between Ella's story in the screenplay, which was based off of her real-life experience helping another Bellingham local woman, Frances Extell, uh, campaign for legislative office, and they won. And so it was like two women kind of pushing against the grain, which is exactly what Stacy and I were doing with our documentary that we interviewed Laura for, uh, which is called Free the Penis. And, um, and so I think we just, it just resonated with us mm-hmm. a lot. Um, and Laura really sold it, like uh, sitting in her office and having her describe that Ella's house was in Red Square. And I don't know, I mean, it was just like, we were covered in goosebumps. It felt like more of like a higher calling almost than some than like a decision we made. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the fact that the screenplay w- was never produced in her time was also something that resonated with us as far as women in film is concerned. Um, so that was another hook. Um, it was it was definitely very much a part of our uh, it was de- it was very much a part of our mission as far as tackling feminist projects or always holding um, women in film as a theme or somehow integrating that into our work. And so it ended up being the epitome of everything that we want to do. It was written by a woman. She never was able to get it produced for reasons we don't know that we have some speculation. Um, and women, uh, women failing in film is something that is, is still a problem today. Sometimes students would, many of her poem, many of Ella Higginson's poems were set to music by well-known composers of the day and sung by famous dramatic singers such as Enrico Caruso. And so sometimes students would get up and they would sing Four Leaf Clover, for instance, or When the Birds Go North Again. And so that would be part of the performance. It would be reciting, it would be dramatizing, it would be singing. And there was Ella Higginson in the front row watching all this, watching these young people who were having the benefit of a college education that she herself had not had the benefit of. As things went on, I had gone to Tamara Belts, who's worked at the Western Special Collections for 40 years now, and I had said, are there any signs of Ella Higginson left on campus? And she said, well, I mean, aside from the quotation above Eden's Hall, and I said, I, I will be right back, <laughs> probably about 20 minutes. <laughs> um, and I did not know at the time that Ella Higginson's house had been on campus. It is where the Viking Commons now stands, between, the lawn between the Viking Commons and Mathis Hall, and had been, it'd been there for a long time, that Ella Higginson used to walk her dogs on campus and was considered to be a figure of great mystery. This was the great Ella Higginson, and students would look at her and um, sometimes come up and shake her hand and she was a very modest very private woman so it took it took a it took a few years before I um, understood the entire scope of what she had done and in the process of doing that I began to realize not only how unjustly forgotten that she was but I began to realize that this was this was my mission that my mission which I never expected to have that my mission was to recover Ella Higginson for American literature That's where she belonged, that's the way she was viewed. By any marker anyone wants to use about whose work should be canonized or what authors should be canonical, she belongs in that category. And so so we arrive at the present day where that is my mission.
thank you for listening to the C19 podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19podcast or get in touch with us at c19podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.